hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I can tell you COVID-19 vaccination is something that no one can get off their minds. Whether they are trying to avoid a COVID-19 vaccine, whether they've taken one, two, or three shots, there is something about the mass vaccination program that has basically taken over our society, our collective thought processes. And in that vein, I was contacted by uh, Joe Langham. And Joe is a really good guy. He is a, an original artist himself. And he sent me a message that says, hope you're doing well, my friend. Here's a rare clip from a familiar song. And I wanted to play it for you because I think it really lays out this idea of what is in our bodies in terms of COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and the note here from uh, uh, Hardy Cargus is this video I made uh, in 1993 to 1994 with Joseph Langham, uh, Bill Globus, and Wild Billy Kneebone, I love it, and others. Uh, it was shot in and around Flagstaff and Sedona, Arizona. I'll put the clip in the program notes. Let's listen to the fire inside these bodies. Inside these 
Wow, that's a fire inside these bodies. That's basically just a little trailer for you to listen to, but you know, shows that music from the 90s and really from all different points in time can be applied to what's going on right now. Uh, as a brief update, uh, we are rounding the last, uh, hopefully the last wave of the BA5 Omicron curve. We don't know what's going to happen in the fall. There's great expectations with multivalent vaccines that have been developed against uh, new variants as, as well as the original Wuhan spike protein. But the vaccines now have no clinical outcomes. There's no randomized trials showing that they do anything, uh, that they're simply relying on immunobridging studies or the demonstration that antibodies are raised. And I can tell you, as a clinical trialist and as a clinical investigator, antibodies are not a sufficient surrogate of a therapeutic response to rely upon. So we have a great degree of uncertainty moving forward with the COVID-19 vaccine program. So with that, we've got a great program. On the back side, we have a special guest for the long program, Miss Kim Overton. Kim is a nurse. She is the founder of the Nurse Freedom Network. She has direct bedside experience in taking care of COVID patients. Uh, she has a tremendous amount of experience with advocacy. And most recently, Kim is going to tell her story as someone who is immunocompromised of her getting COVID herself and what was done for it to have her have such a wonderful presence on the McCullough Report. So with that, let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Uh-oh. Just learned you have COVID in the house. Someone is in the house with you, and they've just tested positive for COVID. You better be ready. One of the best things to do immediately is start passing out the Cofix RX. Cofix RX is 1.5% povidone iodine nasal spray, so it's a higher concentration than even what we use in the home solutions. Uh, it has a long-acting formula, two pumps in each nose, sniff it back, and that gives you protection against what could happen, SARS-CoV-2 infection. It's not a replacement for other forms of intervention, but it's the best you can do to protect yourself when COVID-19 is imminent in your house. Remember, you can get it more than once now with the Omicron variant, so make sure that you have Cofix RX on hand. Go to our website, go to the banner bar, Click on Cofix RX to get a discount on your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. All right. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the CofixRx banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Let me tell you, this is an innovation. The Genesis Fogger uses HOCl. This is a form of hypochlorite. This is a powerful disinfectant uh, that is tried and true 
it's for sure kills SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, but many other pathogens, including bacterial as well as uh, mycofungal pathogens, enter the Genesis Fogger. It is a powerful mister. It's a dry mist and it does cleanse the air. It does uh, have a tremendous uh, disinfectant capability for the room. It's used for industrial purposes uh, and elsewhere, but now it's brought to you in your home to better defend you against SARS-CoV-2, the virus, COVID-19, as well as a host of other pathogens. So if you go to uh, the uh, promotional code and enter in out loud, you can receive a discount off of your first purchase. So go to the Genesis Fogger website and take a look at it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to invite on the show for the very first time, Miss Kim Overton. Kim received her bachelor's degree in nursing from the University of Western Kentucky. And then she went on in her career uh, as a clinical nurse uh, to work in many different venues, notably in the pandemic at the bedside. And Kim has a tremendous story for you today about nurses, the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, things that began to occur in the hospital, her response, and then ultimately the genesis of a new organization. Kim, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough. I'm so, I'm so glad to be here with you today. Thank you. What an honor. Wow. We've been waiting for this interview for a long time. And I have to tell you, uh, there's been so much said about doctors and the pandemic response, but a larger workforce and a more impactful worse workforce to healthcare are nurses. Yes. And everyone knows that nurses are at the bedside. The doctors are not at the bedside. The patients, when they get sick, who they remember is the nurses uh, who have taken care of them. So why don't you take it out, take it from here? What happened as the pandemic occurred, and what were you doing at the time? And just tell us the story. Sure. So as the pandemic started back in, I guess it was March of 2020, I was actually working at the bedside. I was a critical care nurse uh, working in the ICU and I was directly caring for COVID patients. And from the very beginning, you know, nothing seemed to make any logical sense. Every new policy change that would come down really just flew in the face of everything we had long known to be true. Um, as it related to infection control. They had us wearing the same N95 mask from our COVID patient room to our non-COVID patient room, which as you know, um, pre-COVID infection control policies never would have allowed for anything like that to happen. Um, as it related to um, you know, viruses and immunology, viruses and bacteria, we, we long know that we need exposure to viruses and bacteria, literally the building blocks of our immune system, yet suddenly we are told we need to mask everywhere that we go. 
um, you know, just general nursing uh, care, the things that we had long known, um, you know, autonomy, informed consent, all of a sudden these things seem to be so easily dismissed. You know, I think that the moment they told us our patients couldn't have an advocate at their side is the moment that we as nurses should have stepped up and stopped this. I think we had the power to do that. And I'm sorry that we didn't do more. Now, let me ask you something. Uh, sure, there were COVID patients coming into the hospital, yeah. but there were all the usual patients, right? Patients with pneumococcal pneumonia and sepsis and patients with heart failure and myocardial infarction. Did we drop informed consent if someone had a pneumococcal pneumonia? Did we uh, drop uh, patient advocacy? What about other non-COVID conditions? Yeah, and a lot of times, you know, they kept saying that the hospitals were full of patients, but the ho and the hospitals were full of patients, but many of them were not COVID. Many of them were just patients with, like you said, heart disease, diabetes, but they had waited too long because the media literally had them afraid to breathe air, um, that they didn't want to come into a hospital. So these patients had waited too long, and then by the time that they got to us, a lot of times it was too late. Um, and then we could not we could not intervene appropriately, and we could not get them the care, and ultimately they died. Um, and I think it was just a, a very, very disturbing and distressing time of so much death and despair. And with these COVID patients, you know, as much as we, we would do everything that we could, and as hard as we tried, despite all of our best efforts, these patients just were not getting any better. Um, and the reason I left bedside uh, was when I became uncomfortable with the protocols that they were using, specifically remdesivir. Well, listen, I want to ask a question, though. Since yeah. you were seeing these patients, of the patients coming in with COVID-19 and becoming hospitalized, how many of them had comprehensive outpatient care before going to the hospital? Probably none. None? Yeah. You can't remember a single case? No. You can't remember a single case where they went through an organized protocol, McCullough protocol, FLCC, Zelenko protocol, none? No. Um, most of the patients that would come in, they would come in earlier, would gone to the urgent care, let's say, or they'd gone to their doctor, and they weren't sick enough. They were just told to go home and basically come back when they couldn't breathe. Uh, and that's what they did. They went at home. They did nothing. They got to a point. They let the virus get to a point um, where it had pulmonary involvement. They could not breathe at all. Then they would come back to the emergency room, and then they're admitted. And then starts the protocol that, um, unfortunately, did not have a, a good outcome. Now, in your estimation, what percent of patients, before they came to the hospital, received some visit or care at an urgent care or an ER. How many were just de novo presentations versus, uh, I'm trying to get to the ideas, did we have a chance to intervene? Um, certainly, that, certainly there was a chance to intervene if they would go to their primary care and their urgent care, but unfortunately those, those providers weren't doing anything. They weren't treating, they would just tell them there is no treatment, just go home, come back when you're, when you're worse. But did the majority of people ask, did they actually knock on the door or call their doctors? So, yes. Yes, because there were, you know, the early treatment protocols, that information had been out there and many people, many people had asked uh, for treatment for ivermectin, uh, you know, for hydroxychloroquine, and they were uh, mocked, laughed at, and then sent home and told that there was nothing that they, they would be able to do. These were not approved treatments. Okay, let's talk about hospital protocols. There's plenty yeah. of hospital protocols. We have and our hospital protocols for acute myocardial infarction mm -hmm. and for sepsis. Yeah. 
My view of protocols as a doctor is they can give a base set of recommendations, but the protocols never limit what I want to do, right? So if there's a heart attack protocol and it says, you know, give aspirin, uh, counsel people on stopping smoking, etc. But if I want to go further and give advanced medicines, antiplatelet medications, lipid lowering therapy, drugs to influence heart function, it's always my purview to do more. Right. I've never looked at a protocol being the limits of what I can do. Is that your view in nursing? That is my view as well. It's more of a guide um, on how you can provide this care. And then if you, as a doctor, want to add to that protocol, detract from that protocol, I believe it should be within your right to do so. And that's how I've always viewed that as well. So the COVID-19 protocols, as they came out, they were very minimalistic. Would you agree? Yes. Absolutely. No, um, no vitamins, no supplements, uh, nothing like that. It was strictly the remdesivir. And at the time they were using steroids, but very low doses of steroids, very subtherapeutic doses of steroids. Um, and then the remdesivir. That so was they basically were it. bare minimum. So a yeah. minimum amount of steroids, mm-hmm. remdesivir, which we'll get to. Yeah. Uh, no adjunctive oral medicines, no, no. hydroxychloroquine, no Nothing. ivermectin, no colchicine, no. no inhaled budesonide. No. Eventually they did start doing the budesonide, um, but that was much later on. In the How beginning. about aspirin? Yes. I, I, I best of my recollection, they were doing an aspirin. And then how about anticoagulants? I did, rem- I did recall the Lovenox being used in some right. cases. Which we would use, by the way, if right. anybody came in with a pneumonia or a hip fracture anyway. So it was yeah. nothing special about using sure. blood thinners in the hospitals. But you would agree it's 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 minimal treatment, yes. right? So the guidelines, uh, if they're if they're adhered to, they're they're minimalistic. Did you ever see a patient admitted to the hospital who had been treated with monoclonal antibodies beforehand? Not beforehand. There's a recent paper I want everyone to be aware of. It's in JAMA, and the first author is Ho Wang and colleagues. And it's a big data set of people hospitalized. Those who receive monoclonal antibodies, which in my view have always been safe and effective, their operation warp speed, their emergency use authorized, they have every bit of high-tech enthusiasm as should a vaccine or any other product in COVID-19. Huang showed that only about 15% of people received monoclonal antibodies, but when they were hospitalized, they did great. They survived. And sadly, 85% who didn't receive monoclonal antibodies did poorly. Those are the ones who had long lengths to stay and unfortunately death in the hospital. Kim, of the patients who died with COVID that you know about in general, what percent of people die at home and what percent die in the hospital? You know, that's a good question because they keep telling us that the virus is killing these patients, you know, but if the virus alone were killing the patients, why are we not pulling bodies out of homes and off of the streets en masse? We're not. You know, we've got to start asking ourselves why are patients only dying in our hospitals? I don't, I can't think of any. I can't think of any that are dying at home or dying on the streets. All of the patients I knew that died of COVID are dying in the hospitals. And you have to ask yourselves, are they dying of COVID or are they dying of the complete and total medical mismanagement of COVID? And that's my belief. And how, what, what, give us a, an idea of time frame of the cases you saw of those who died in the hospital. How long are they in the hospital before they ultimately succumb and die? 
Um, typically, I would say one to three weeks would be an average. So a long period of yeah. time. So you'd agree that's a long time to have medical and nursing intervention. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And that's a very long time to be on a ventilator, as you all know. And what percent of deaths in your nursing practice occur in people despite being on the ventilator? What? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? What percent of deaths occur of people on the ventilator, which they're actually oh. on the ventilator. Oh, yeah, to most all of them on the ventilator. I can only recall of two patients coming off of the ventilator and surviving, two. Two. Mm-hmm. You know, these are stunning numbers. The, the specter of not seeing your loved ones again, yeah. dying on a mechanical ventilator. And Kim uh, is a bedside nurse, had tremendous experience in COVID. And the reason why I brought her on the show is I don't want it to be just my opinion or another doctor. Let's talk to somebody who saw this firsthand. Tell us about the family members and what their reaction was when they were told they can't see their loved ones again. I mean, they were so disturbed and I was disturbed as a nurse, you know, having to tell family members that they are not able to come in and be with their loved ones as they are sick and potentially um, at the end of their life, that we would take that advocate away from our patients just broke my heart a hundred percent. I mean, I don't understand why we would do this. Um, There is so many, there have been studies done that have shown how having you know your advocate at your side, your family member, um, you know how that is going to increase your chances of recovery. When we are leaving people feeling isolated and alone, you know depression sets in, and what happens then? Our immune system it takes a hit. So that certainly does not help. And the will to survive. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, dying a respiratory death means in the end just giving up on breathing. Right. And there must be a will to survive. The The work of breathing is tremendous. The patients I've seen, uh, it's almost like running a, uh, you know, a thousand meter race that just doesn't end the, yeah. the amount of uh, incredible work of breathing. So it takes a, a lot of willpower. So as patients are in rooms, you're using uh, standard uh, contagion control methods, negative pressure isolation, you're wearing masks, doing reasonable things. If the nurses can go to the bedside and do that, why couldn't family members do that? Good question. That's what I was asking from the very beginning. And if it's a liability issue, have them sign a waiver. It's a very simple fix as far as I'm concerned. Um, We should have allowed these patients, half of whom already had COVID anyway. Now, um, are you aware of any case where a patient's relative came into the hospital and contracted COVID from coming in the hospital to, to talk with doctors or nurses? No, that's my knowledge. Not a single case. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of any major hospital outbreaks in the United States? No. Me neither. No. Me neither. Now, one could say the reason why there were no outbreaks is because we prohibited people from coming in the hospital and we use these techniques, but it didn't happen all over. Maybe in your hospital, they blocked family members from coming to the bedside, but not all over. Now, tell us about another activity I'm very interested in, and that is medical contraband. Did you ever see patients or family members start to just bring in their own medicines? So I didn't in my experience, but I'd heard about it. I'd heard about it at other hospitals where that was happening, where um, patients were trying, and even some nurses were trying to smuggle in ivermectin for uh, their their family members 
and uh, had gotten had gotten caught doing so. And what happened? Um, I don't know if anything. I don't think anything. Um, you know, crazy happened, but they they did take that medication away. So they took and it they away. Allowed, yes, and they were not allowed to go back. Can you explain what medication reconciliation is um, uh, in terms of if a patient is on normally they come in the hospital they're on some home medications. Mm-hmm. Are they allowed to continue their home medications in the hospital for other conditions? Yes, typically they are allowed to. Um, we, we, when they come in and do their history and physical, we go through their medications. They are typically allowed to continue any home medications if the doctor uh, agrees to that. Sometimes that they'll hold certain ones. Um, and usually they will get the hospital supply of medications. Occasionally there'll be a medication that we don't carry in the uh, in the hospital pharmacy, so they'll have to get special permission uh, from the pharmacy to you take their own home medications. Okay, so if I had a patient on uh, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin uh, at home and they get sicker and they go in the hospital, right? Wouldn't it be usual in other cases to just say patient may have home medications at bedside? Yes, that's very typical. It would just say continue home meds. Yeah. Now, let me ask you another question. If you're on the floor, not not a COVID patient, but let's say they bring in a, a homeless patient and he's covered with scabies and the doctor ordered ivermectin to cover scabies, would there be any problem? I would think not. I would hope not. <laughs> how about a patient, let's say a, a woman comes in with a flare of lupus mm-hmm. and the doctors order hydroxychloroquine. There's a fever, she's sick, she's tachycardic. Would there be any problems? No, we regularly gave that medication. How about a patient who comes in with asthma and uh, you know a doctor wants to use 60 milligrams of prednisone? Any problems? No. How about uh, a patient comes in and the doctor is worried about blood clots and we can't prove that they're there, but uh, we're in the process of you know taking care of a sick patient and we give full dose Lovenox, a milligram per kilogram. Any problems there? No. So my question for you, if there's no problems in non-COVID illnesses, in us using a range of medications, continuing drugs from inpatient to outpatient, having doctors and nurses use their clinical judgment in taking care of patients, which we do every day. What is it about COVID, specifically just those patients with COVID, not anybody else? What is it about COVID that took all of that off the table? Well, your guess is as good as mine, but my guess and my theory is that um, it was quite nefarious. I don't think that they were wanting these people to get better. And who, who didn't want them to get better? You know, I don't, you know, who, government, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how far up it goes, um, but the CDC, FDA, all of those, you know, three-letter agencies that the doctors seem to take all of um, their, you know, that that's who they seem to follow without question, unfortunately. Um, you know, and if it goes up further than that, I don't know, but it seems that none of those agencies right down to the doctors following their orders, want any of these patients to get better? Or they just want us to believe that there's no way that they can get better. I don't know if it's just to propagate fear, because fear is a wonderful means of control. But why only COVID? 
So a doctor would have a, a whole group of patients on his rounding list. And then with COVID, everything would be restricted and, and everything would be done non-standard of care. But the next patient would get a range of steroids, would get ivermectin, other things or other conditions. Yeah. Why COVID? How did in the minds of doctors and nurses, how did they actually lock into this but just for COVID, not other illnesses. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I never bought into it myself, um, but that mass formation psychosis, I really feel like there's something to that. And it's funny because they say that the higher your um, education level is, the easier you are to fall into that mass formation psychosis. So I, I do believe that that theory, you know. So, but just for true. COVID, not for non-COVID illnesses, right. there, there are basically people who came under a trance or some type yeah. of, mental state where they, they lost their critical thinking. Do you know what I think played a big role, I saw it at my center, is the development of COVID units. Mm -hmm. So COVID units, there wasn't a broad group of rounding doctors. There were specific COVID doctors. Then there were specific nurses. Uh, every COVID patient at my center had to have an infectious disease consultation. Then it got to the point where they had COVID. I couldn't even log into the electronic medical record and we'll see what's going on. Uh, did you experience that too, the development of COVID units where they were closed and other people couldn't see what's going on? Not in my hospital, but I had heard about that at several of the other national hospitals where they had their own COVID wings. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting. If you start thinking about COVID, it seems like it's a billion dollar industry when you're building up uh, separate wings and hospitals. If you think about the uh, centers that they set up specifically just for testing, um, it all seems as if it's just um, a money-making machine. It's a whole industry. Did you ever hear comments from administrators or nursing supervisors that the money was flowing in, that somehow hospital revenues were better? Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. So, um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, of course, but um, they're staggering. They're staggering the numbers uh, of that you would get for um, having a patient on a ventilator for ninety six hours or more, and it depend. I think it was thirty nine thousand dollars per patient, um, and then the the. Um, the money overall for the, the COVID admission, and it varied by state, but was as much as I believe 466,000 maybe. That's, That's a staggering. It's, it's That's the, a the staggering numbers are number. staggering. Yes, absolutely. So Kim, if I go into the hospital and I have a patient with a staph infection and I order vancomycin, you know, that goes on to the medical administration record. Vancomycin goes into the hospital bill. There's a certain amount per dose. There is the charge for the IV infusion setup. There's the charge for nurse administration. There's a lot of uh, line items in a hospital bill. But if I gave vancomycin for five days, the hospital bill wouldn't be credited with a bonus of 20% exactly. as it is with remdesivir. Have you ever seen this, giving an antimicrobial and getting a bonus on the entire hospital payment? Never, never. And they're doing those 20% bonuses. Um, and, and that's why I am so insistent on incentivized healthcare. We have, we've got to put a stop to that incentivized healthcare. That is not healthcare. That would be what I would term a perverse incentive. Yeah. Uh, remdesivir, and many of you listening to the McCullough Report know this, in November of 2020, the World Health Organization, after they completed the largest randomized mm -hmm. trial of remdesivir and a big synthesis of all the data, they held a consensus conference. They brought in clinical trialists. They brought in human ethicists. 
They brought in and ultimately it was agreed upon by the European Society of Critical Care. Conclusion, do not use remdesivir. There are higher rates of death, liver injury, and renal failure over the five-day infusion. And it was stunning that American hospitals continue to give it. Absolutely. Yeah, the study showed it was over half of the study participants had died. Um, and then the, the really interesting part is that it doesn't work. And there was massive global studies done that showed it had no impact on little to no impact on hospitalized patients. And and why is that? By the time that they get to us in the hospital, they are typically um, well past the um, replication phase, and they are well into the symptomatic phase of the virus. Right. So by the time they get to us. You know, remdesivir is an antiviral, so it relies on some form of viral replication in order to be effective. So little to no viral replication, it's not going to be effective against COVID or any other virus. So that's why it's not working for those patients. So we have to ask ourselves, why then are hospitals continuing to use this protocol that's clearly doing more harm than good? Were there ever any nursing conferences or any review to ask the question, should we continue to give remdesivir? Was there ever a, a, a meeting where it says, listen, WHO says, let's stop using it. Was there ever a pause to reevaluate remdesivir? I had been asking several questions and you know that, that never got an answer, unfortunately. The only answer that we ever get is this is what the, um, the CDC recommends. And that's it. And no further questions. No further questions. You know, I recently testified in the Texas Senate to the Department of Health and Human Services on June 27, 2022. And I told, listen, the DHHS, I said, listen, when the WHO made a major announcement that remdesivir should not be used in the hospital, every government and every state should have held a meeting yeah. and said, wait a minute, we have new news. Uh, we had great hope on remdesivir, but it's not working. People are dying. Are we going to give anybody else in the state of Texas remdesivir when we're guided not to do so? And, you know, I got a basically a group of individuals that they were stunned. I said, that's on your watch. You're supposed to be paying attention to big news. We should be paying attention to major developments. Yeah. Well, what were nurses saying, uh, you know, at the uh, break room and at the coffee pot? What were nurses saying? when remdesivir was continued and more Americans were dying. Yeah. So at first, I think that most of the nurses really didn't think anything nefarious was going on. A lot of us were just thinking, wow, this doesn't work. Why are we still continuing to use it? Why not try something else? Um, a few of us were asking questions, but unfortunately, too many were just kind of parroting that, that same mantra of follow the science. They were just saying that same narrative, but they weren't asking any, you know, real, real hard questions and just kind of going along with what the hospitals were were sending down, um, which to me is unfortunate. But remdesivir is actually the reason I left bedside nursing. You know, I became uncomfortable with this protocol that we're using. I've seen it given to, you know, patients already in renal failure when we know that this medication is nephrotoxic, meaning it's damaging to the kidneys. But we see it given to patients who are already in renal failure. Why would we do this? So, yeah, if patients have baseline kidney disease, let's say most commonly due to diabetes and hypertension, mm -hmm they have what's called reduced renal functional reserve. That means they can't really sustain any damage due to a drug that has renal toxicity. So an example would be if somebody is already into early renal failure or has chronic kidney disease, 
we'd be very careful with genomycin mm -hmm. and with vancomycin. Yeah. Did you see that care and concern with remdesivir? No. It was just given to everybody, just blanket. It did not matter. And I say this all the time that, you know, healthcare isn't one size fits all. We cannot just have one medication that we use for everybody. It doesn't work that way. But unfortunately, that's what we saw. We saw this medication given to everybody despite any um, pre-existing conditions, any comorbidities, all of that. They just, everybody got the same protocol. Did you ever see a doctor tell a patient, listen, we're going to try remdesivir, but the data suggests it may not work and it can cause kidney failure and liver damage. Did a doctor ever lay it out for a patient? Not that I know of. And this is an interesting thing about informed consent. So with informed consent, um, you know, doctors would go in and provide, the, the doctors were responsible for, for providing the information and the informed consent. And the nurses were um, responsible for going in and asking the the patient, did the doctor talk to you? Do you have any additional questions? And getting them to sign for the informed consent. That's a practice I really think that needs to be looked at because uh, many times the nurses are not in the room when the doctor provides that informed consent. And that's a problem for me because a lot of the, um, a lot of people just implicitly trust doctors. So whatever they say, um, they just accept. They may have questions. They probably aren't answered. I don't think that nurses should be obtaining informed consent if they are not there to hear that entire conversation with the physician. It's good practice because you, yeah. you provide a third party and a witness. Yes. Now, in your hospital, during the time you were there, were doctors going in and examining patients uh, at least a, a couple times a day? At the height of COVID, absolutely not. We could, we could barely get them on the floor. If we did get them on the floor, they would um, look in through the glass. We had the fishbowl rooms, and they would look through the glass. And that was the extent of their exam. So we just didn't have actually bedside care being done Correct. by the doctors. Correct. They would not come on the floor. They were, And then they, they said that they didn't want to come in because they were trying to preserve the PPE for the nurses, which I thought was interesting. So where were the doctors? Were they in the hospital somewhere? Were they at home? Or Yeah, a lot of them were They were in the hospital, but they just would not come up. We were, I was in the ICU. They would not come up to a floor, or they would just come in and, and barely get into the room of those COVID patients. What impact do you think that not having a doctor come to the bedside, examine the lungs, talk to the patient, what impact do you think that had? I mean, it's certainly a negative impact. We need those physicians to go in and, uh, you know, physical assessment is so important. And, you know, a lot of the nurses that are coming up, we have a lot of new nurses. We have a lot of new and very inexperienced nurses. Um, and, and fortunately, I've seen nurses with six months experience become charge nurses, which is extremely frightening, if you ask me. Um, because they, you know, at six months, even at a year, sometimes two years, you're still very much a baby nurse. You don't even know what you don't know yet. So it's very important to have the doctors there to, um, you know, to come behind the nurses and make sure that everything is being done appropriately. I had seen nurses going in and out of rooms, uh, charting assessments, and they didn't even have a stethoscope, you know, so. I'll tell you, I've examined a lot of patients with COVID-19, and there's no other process that causes the lung exam to yeah. sound like it does. And if I didn't examine patients, I wouldn't have right. that experience. And sadly, I think so many of these COVID doctors have actually never examined a patient. And we know 
those who are advising on a national level with the agencies. They, you know, it's been under Senate testimony that they don't have any experience seeing patients. Kim, what impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on the nursing workforce? Significant, significant. Um, you know, this this system, either way, is, you know, it's a very broken and oppressive system, and it has been for a long time. But the fact that, and then, you know, if you, we're probably going to touch on the vaccine part of it here in a bit, but the fact that they have um, fired some of their, most of their workforce um, has had a, and a tremendous impact on nursing. Like I said, we don't, we have very inexperienced nurses left at the bedside. We don't have hardly any left that um, really have the experience or know what they're doing. We have um, new nurses training even newer nurses. Um, and it's frightening. It's frightening. We have a nursing shortage. It's catastrophic, the level of nursing shortage that we have today. Um, and, you know, all of us, all of us are going to suffer dire consequences from this. Now, you are a bedside nurse mm-hmm. uh, in a uh, community medical center in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, right? just outside of Nashville. Just outside of Nashville. When was it that you pulled the trigger and said, I got to get out? It was um, March of 2021 when I left the bedside, and I actually um, started working from home as a telephone triage nurse. Yes. And then what happened from there in terms of the formation of your new endeavor? So I I'd start well. I started Nurse Freedom Network in July of 2020, and that was just a way to kind of stand up against the mandates that were coming down. I had not uh, received a mandate at my facility at that time, but I saw it happening at facilities that um, I had friends and former colleagues that, that worked at. So we started, it just started out as a Facebook group and some place for us to kind of come together, vent our frustrations and try to make sense of just all of this craziness that was going on. And it really just quickly evolved from there. Um, we started seeing, um, we started doing some protests at local hospitals in Nashville. Um, and then we. Um, so this was July of yeah, 2021, July, right? July of 2021. Did you ever anticipate when you were a younger nurse that you'd be a part of protests? Well, yes, probably for different reasons. Probably for different reasons. Probably for, you know, because I, we've long had issues, long had issues. Safe staffing has been an issue in hospitals for decades. Um, you know, our, our pay has been an issue for decades, patient safety. So absolutely, did I think I would participate in things like that? Yes. Um, not for these reasons, absolutely not. No. And so tell us about the Nurse Freedom Network. You know, how big is it now? What's your regular operations? Who's joining? Mm-hmm. So right now we've got nurses that are building advocacy um, teams in about 20 states, and we are growing every day. We're adding states. Um, and what we're doing is we are trying to fight back against the vaccine mandates. That's our, our main goal. But beyond the advocacy alone, what we want to do with Nurse Freedom Network is create opportunities for nurses to break away from this broken and oppressive system. It's a sick care system, truly. It does nothing to keep anybody well. And we want to be able to create opportunities because so many nurses don't understand that they have the ability to do anything other than be a hospital employee. They don't understand that there are other things that they can do with their license. So we are trying to create these opportunities. Um, We really feel that an alternative system is going to be necessary moving forward. And our network of nurses, what we're doing in building this network is to um, 
to have those nurses function within that parallel system. Well, that's a giant leap forward. Now, you left your job in March of 2021. That was about four months after the rollout of the yeah. vaccines. What was it like as a nurse when the vaccines came to your hospital? What was the messaging yeah. like and behaviors? Yeah, so um, many of us did not want to get this vaccine. I had already experienced uh, patients with severe side effects from the vaccine, um, paralysis. I had seen you know, GI bleeds in populations you wouldn't normally see them in. I was seeing strokes. I was seeing uh, the myocarditis. So clearly, the, this is something that I want to take a, a step back and wait. I wanted to wait for some more data to come in before I was comfortable taking it. Specifically with my multiple autoimmune conditions, I just did not feel comfortable. Many of the nurses that I worked with didn't feel comfortable, um, but everybody was really being coerced into taking it. Even though it wasn't mandated at my facility, it was there was still a lot of pressure to set the example. In what form were you receiving pressure? Um, just a lot of kind of um, just management coming around and, and really kind of bullying and pressuring you into taking it, saying how we needed to set the example for our patients, that sort of thing. Um, which how about is, emails? Were you getting emails? Oh, yes. Yes, how about text, constant. text messages? Mm -hmm. Text messages, emails. Um, oh, we haven't gotten your, you haven't filled out your status for your COVID vaccine yet. And if you said you did not want it, then they wanted to offer you some education, uh, COVID education with a physician to sit down and tell you why you should get this vaccine um, that they actually knew nothing about either. So, Were you ever offered mm -hmm. a bribe? Like you would get... Uh, you know, a gift card or a check mm -hmm. or something like that? Yeah, they were offering incentives for it. And, you know, I had made up my mind. And the more that they offered incentives, the more I was absolutely dead set against getting it. What percent of nurses, honestly, do you think have concerns regarding these vaccines, whether they're stated or not stated? I would probably say, now they may not all be expressing those concerns, but I would probably say anywhere from probably 80%. Really? I think 80, I think it's a very high number that have concerns. Many of them don't say it. But what I said from the beginning is I feel like the nurses are very, very underrepresented in this fight. We hear from the physicians and, and that's wonderful. I don't take anything away from you. You guys are all heroes to me. Um, but I feel like we, we hear from the physicians, but where are the nurses? You know, nursing has been voted the most trusted profession for 20 years running. Um, we have a different relationship with our patients. And I truly feel like we are very, very underrepresented in this fight. And that's really my goal with Nurse Freedom Network is to get the nurses out there. But there are still so many that aren't seeing for whatever reason. And I think it could be because, you know, as nurses, we do have that tendency to compartmentalize a little bit. Um, and it's just a necessary defense mechanism to do our job. So maybe they are just not seeing, you know, what's right in front of their eyes. So what I hope to do with Nurse Freedom Network is go around uh, and, and speak with nurses. We're actually having a nursing conference in Orlando on October 6th and 7th, where we'll be um, there speaking to nurses. And I actually bring with me vaccine injured patients. I bring, I bring uh, survivors, survivors of remdesivir poisoning. I bring family members of those who have lost their lives to remdesivir. They aren't, some of these nurses aren't seeing or hearing these other perspectives, and it's not one that we can ignore any longer. So my, my prayer is that by going around and showing these nurses, giving them that unique perspective of someone who has worked through the entire pandemic, who has seen the death and devastation and the disability that these vaccines have caused, 
and uh, then hearing from these victims that it will show them another perspective, prayerfully open their eyes and um, in turn save more lives. That's what needs to happen because too many nurses are just not seeing it. Kim, in the last few minutes, I want to transition to a thought I've been having that so early on in the pandemic, social distancing, lockdown, wearing masks, hazmat suits, hand sanitizer, shutting down the workplace. It was all about making the virus go away, getting to COVID zero, what we call a COVID zero policy. And then it, it looked like, gosh, we really can't stop it. People said, well, we're just going to try to slow the spread. And in fact, we may have slowed the spread when Spanish flu swept through the United States uh, around 1918 to 1920. Uh, there was none of these measures, honestly, outside of a few public health measures were done. And it basically exhausted itself in the U.S. population with no vaccines in about two years. Now we're into our third year. It looks like cases are down. We've been through the big Omicron surge. We've had a secondary Omicron wave. And is it now a reality, Kim, that COVID is inevitable, that COVID will find every last susceptible victim out there? What's your view? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I do I do believe that that's true. I believe that it is inevitable that we will all get it at this point. So I've, I had gone nearly three years um, somehow, and I have a suppressed immune system. I, I have multiple autoimmune conditions. I take medication that suppresses my immune system. Yet I had gone three years directly caring for COVID patients, um, you know, I'm unvaccinated for whatever that is supposed to do. <laughs> um, but I had somehow managed to evade the, the deadliest, most contagious, supposedly, virus known to man. Um, but it uh, it actually came for me as well. It just... So you recently got COVID-19. I did. It finally came for me. Almost certainly the Omicron BA5 variant. And what's the context in which you think you got it? So I actually was attending a CPAC event here in uh, Dallas, Texas. I was attending CPAC and um, went back to my hotel that night and just uh, started feeling very ill. That next night, started feeling very ill, uh, horrible, horrible headache, worst, probably the worst headache I'd ever had. Um, just some fever, chills, body aches. It, it was awful. Um, so it's constitutional yeah. symptoms, yeah. right? So uh, uh, in the headache, you know, we typically don't got these brutal headaches with colds, yes. right? right? We typically don't get fever, of which you were febrile, you were yeah. systemically ill. So you knew that was a difference. Any Anything in terms of nasal congestion or sore throat? Uh, not, not really to begin with. I had just a little tiny bit of nasal congestion, but really no pulmonary involvement at all. Okay. No. So you waited a few hours. You were surveilling the situation. Could it be food poisoning? Could it be, you know, some other general illness? And then how long did it take for you to realize, listen, I could have COVID? Um, I think it was probably maybe 20 hours or so okay. later. That's yeah. pretty typical. Now, CPAC stands for the Conservative Political Action Committee, mm -hmm. and we're not politically charged on this program, but CPAC, uh, as a uh, conservative uh, political action committee in the United States has actually brought in doctors and nurses to give their opinion on pandemic response, which is welcomed. I also uh, was a featured speaker at the last uh, two CPAC meetings. I was there too. Lots of handshaking, yes. lots of pictures, yes. lots of excitement. We're in the Anatole in Dallas. There you are. And so 
tell me what treatment, we don't have to give a lot of details about the doctor and how all this was orchestrated, but tell me physically the medicines that you took and you were pretty sick when you started out. Mm-hmm. What was your response with early multi-drug treatment? Wow, amazing. So I took, uh, let's see, we hit it with ivermectin. We hit it with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, we hit it with um, the vitamin D, vitamin C. We uh, hit it with some prednisone and uh, doxycycline, I believe, was the other one. We really came at it with everything, and I will tell. And the uh, the Cofix nasal spray, which was amazing, um, and then some uh, Listerine gargles. And I will tell you that within, I would say, twenty four hours, maybe twenty four to forty eight hours, maybe I am probably about eighty percent better. So I, and I've always been an a extreme advocate for early treatment, but now that I have actually lived it and uh, received the early treatment myself, I can, I am, uh, I can certainly testify that early treatment does work. It's absolutely amazing. Now tell me about some other interventions. I know uh, you were advised to, um, once you're out of your room, open the windows, mm-hmm. get fresh air, yes. take a good cleansing shower, get outside and take fresh air, take your little guest dog for a walk. (laughs) How big is it for people to actually do that? That is extremely important, you know, rather than just kind of lying in the, the, uh, locking yourself up in the room with the virus, getting out, getting fresh air, getting that vitamin D is so, is so important. Getting up and mo- being mobile, um, is, is so important to prevent, um, blood clots. We, we have to absolutely get up. And that's a lot of, uh, you know, things that didn't happen, unfortunately, in the, during the pandemic where a lot of those patients, you know, were not getting, um, mobilize the way that they should. Um, so it's it's extremely important not to just lie around, get up and take short walks, even if it's 10, 15 minutes. Um, get up, walk, walk around the block, walk uh, around your backyard, but get up and get moving. It's extremely important. That's absolutely terrific. Um, tell us a little bit about what you use for fever control. You were rocking with mm-hmm. a fever. Now, yeah. high fever um, causes nausea, which is important because once yeah. you develop nausea, then it's difficult to take the pills or eat. Right. High fever not only causes insensible losses of water, yeah. but it, it, invariably people drink less fluid when they have a high yes. fever. Mm-hmm. So how important is fever control in COVID and what did you use? So I, I was controlling with Aleve. So you used a non-steroidal. Yes, and non-steroidal. I've emphasized this in the past, Fazio and colleagues, uh, a whole series of papers now. If anybody wants to look them up, Dr. Fazio from Italy, most of his papers are in the medical monitor, clearly showed preferentially we use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. agents, Aleve, which is naproxen sodium, yeah. or, Mot- or Motrin, which is ibuprofen. I think the liquid gel caps are the best if you have them. That's favored over Tylenol. You certainly can use Tylenol, but use the non-steroidal since they actually inhibit some of the inflammatory activity of the virus, you know, the virus is replicating, but what makes people feel sick is the systemic cytokines. That's what's causing your fever. How did it go with the nasal washes? Now, it just turns out you used the products, Cofix RX, which is one of the sponsors of our platform. How easy was that to use and what impact do you think? 
Oh, very, very easy to use. Um, I think that's an incredibly important to do those nasal washes and get those the virus flush it out of your um, your nares, not letting it live there. Um, uh, so hopefully and prayerfully, we won't be losing any taste, of, uh, sense of taste and smell. So uh, definitely very easy to use. Um, I used it about two to four times a day. Good. And it seems to be working well. Oh, aspirin as well. We did the 325 of the aspirin. aspirin. Yeah. So it's a multi-drug approach. Mm -hmm. Kim's on day three, mm -hmm. uh, if not four. Four, I think. Uh, you're basically nearly back to normal. Yeah, I would say about 80, probably 85% today. Okay. And maybe, maybe uh, more. no fever. Going to mm -hmm. get outside, walk the dog, take a swim, mm -hmm. get ready to return to normal life. Yeah. Can you imagine, Kim? Someone who has multiple uh, autoimmune conditions, of which you're on a tumor necrosis factor inhibitor, Humira, can you imagine being locked in your room under lockdown, yeah. you cannot go out, and given no form of treatment, nothing, can you imagine progressively getting worse yeah. and coming to the point where you panic? You panic and then you go to the hospital. Right. Now, I know better to, to go to the hospital. I would probably have died in my hotel room before I went to the hospital because I see what happens there. But I, I can't imagine, you know, and as miserable as I was um, before I started treatment, I can't imagine allowing that to progress any further. Um, and I'm, I'm telling you, I was absolutely miserable. But I, I was so weak. I couldn't get out of the, I could barely get up out of the bed. I couldn't stay awake. Um, once I got in the headache, I had taken, um, I think, ibuprofen um, or Excedrin just to try to control the headache and sleep a little bit. But beyond that, I couldn't stay awake. I could barely get out of bed. Um, so I know that if I did not treat that, that it would have progressed and um, eventually, ultimately would have led to pulmonary involvement, I'm certain. Um, and uh, at that point, and again, I would not have gone to the hospital. So we all know that wouldn't have ended well. And yeah. patients with autoimmune illnesses, this is important, systemic lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, they are at higher risk for yeah. blood clotting yeah. and a pulmonary embolism. And that's my great concern with any patient with an autoimmune problem. So as an internist cardiologist and, and an innovator uh, like Vladimir Zelenko or Didier Rialt or Paul Merrick or Pierre Corey, we jump on things with intensive treatment yeah. And we take a patient like Kim, who could actually have a bad outcome, and within a matter of days, provided we have a compliant patient, within a matter of days, it's a brand new outlook. And every patient who's been, been brought through early treatment becomes even a stronger advocate because they've yeah. actually experienced them themselves. Kim, this has been an absolutely terrific interview, and uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And I think you're a true hero, and I uh, appreciate you, what you do for humanity. You're amazing. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.